calling all aspiring podcasters. This is your sign to start your own podcast because we have just the right tool for you. Before we started podcasting, we really thought that everything would be such a hassle, especially the editing. But we found the best and most convenient all-around podcast tool out there, Podmachine. Podmachine will take care of all your podcasting needs. From audio production, designs, and marketing growth, all you have to do is sit back, relax, and keep creating great content that sounds professional. It's time for you to start sounding like a pro with Podmachine today. Sign up and get a free episode trial. And once you're convinced of how good it can be and how it helped us, you can start for as low as only $49.99 for four episodes in a month. But wait, there's more. If you use our code PHMURDER, all caps, no spaces, you get one free episode credit upon subscribing. Just head on to podmachine.com and let them do the dirty work so you can do the fun stuff and sound like a pro. Podcast Network Asia. This episode may include topics, references, or discussions around sexual assault, domestic violence, stalking, physical violence, or subject matters that may be disturbing to some of our listeners. We do acknowledge that this content may be difficult. We also encourage you to care for your safety and well-being. Shocking, sad, revealing, and deeply researched, PH Murder Stories podcast covers the true account of infamous killings and true crime stories from the Philippines. There's no such thing as questions, just hidden answers. Stay tuned as we revisit the inconceivable crimes that exist. Some listeners may find the following content of PH Murder Stories highly disturbing due to its graphic nature. PH Murder Stories does not condone nor promote violence of all sorts. Viewer discretion is advised. Siya na yung pinakaunang fake news troll sa, <laughs> sa kasaysayan ng mundo because he was the one putting out all of the fake news back then that number one justified martial law. Pagkaraan ng mga dalawang linggo, natagpuan ng pangkay ni Boyan. He was tortured brutally. Ang mga kuko niya, binunot lahat. Bunot ang kanya mga kuko. And then, 33 ice pick wounds around the body. In January 1977, almost five years since martial law was declared, Primitivo Mejares, also known as Tibo, was a journalist and former chief propagandist of the late dictator Ferdinand Marcos, from 1963 to 1974. Tibo left the Marcos regime in 1974 and went to the United States where he had issued a defection statement vowing to tell the lies and atrocities that the Marcoses had done during his time of service. From 1974 to 1977, the former Marcos confidant made headlines due to his prior knowledge regarding the devious wrongdoings that the Marcoses were currently practicing at the time. 
between 1976 and 1977. Tibo managed to testify before the United States House of Representatives Subcommittee on International Organizations, which held hearings on violations of human rights in South Korea and the Philippines. He also published a book titled The Conjugal Dictatorship of Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos, which at the time was very crucial in understanding how the Marcoses kept themselves in power and how they abused the implementation of martial law. On the third week of January 1977, after being last seen at a speaking engagement in Guam, Tibo suddenly disappeared. Four months after his sudden disappearance, his youngest son, 16-year-old Luis Manuel Mejares, or commonly known as Boyet, was found dead in the mountains of Antipolo Rizal. Nearby residents at the scene claimed that Boyat was thrown off from a military helicopter passing by the area. Based on the medical reports conducted on Boyat's body, the examining doctor concluded that the young boy was beaten, tortured, and gouged with an ice pick 33 times. His eyeball was also scraped off and was found several meters away from where the body was dumped. Before the saddening incident, the De Mejaras family, Primitivo had already faced multiple challenges as a 12-year-old boy. His life story began in Santo Tomas, his hometown, located in the province of Batangas. During the height of the Japanese invasion, Tibo's parents were killed by Japanese soldiers. Based on his book, His mother died from bayonet thrusts, while his father suffered gunshots and was also struck with a bayonet. Tibo had three siblings, two sisters, and a brother. All of them were safe from the brutality that their parents endured. After World War II, the Mehara siblings were split into two. The two girls went with their relatives to Saba, while Tibo and his brother moved to Baguio with their uncle, an agriculturist. The gruesome incidents that Tibo had witnessed might have inspired him to become a writer. During his high school days, Tibo was an editor of his school's newspaper, got elected president in his class during his senior year, and was the valedictorian. After high school, Tibo focused on his writing. He became the youngest editor of the Baguio Midland Courier, the city's most prominent newspaper outlet in the 1950s. A year later, he became a full-pledged reporter with the now-defunct Manila Chronicle, covering all major beats. Even though his writing career is on the rise, Tibo still managed to pursue his Bachelor of Arts degree in 1956 and Bachelor of Laws in 1960 at the Lyceum of the Philippines University through night school. In the same year that he finished his law degree, Tibo passed the Philippine Bar Examination. Indeed, Tibo's talents and perseverance would bear more career opportunities. By then, 
former dictator Ferdinand Marcos was rising through the ranks, which Thibault would write about, sparking a friendship between the two men. In 1969, Thibault married Priscilla Mejares. She was a regional trial court judge in Manila. Together, they have four children, Perla, Jose Antonio, Pilita, and Luis Manuel. The Mejares family resided in Project 6, Quezon City. Since Ferdinand Marcos was elected as president, Thibault became the administration's chief propagandist. However, he was not an ordinary reporter. Thibault was said to have access to the Marcos administration's privileged information and helped the regime strategize with the promotion of martial law. Before the start of the martial law era, Thibault wrote about his role with the Marcos regime. His job back then was to convince his fellow countrymen that the martial law's imposition was necessary to combat a potential communist insurgency. One of Thibault's significant works with the Marcoses was the press release he wrote about the ambush of then-Defense Secretary Juan Ponce Enrile even before it happened. The incident to Juan Ponce Enrile was made to look like it was inflicted by communist rebels, which gave Marcos the reason to impose martial law in 1972. However, in 1986, after Enrile defected from the Marcoses, he confirmed that his ambush was fake. Though later, in 2012, he would retract his statement and wrote that it really happened. In 1973, Thibault was appointed by the regime to serve as the presidential reporter for the Philippines Daily Express and was elected as the president of the National Press Club, which also made him the chairman of the Media Advisory Council established during martial law. According to relatives, Thibault was well paid and would often enjoy the fruits of his services to the Marcos family, such as traveling worldwide at the expense of the government, nice cars, and the great house. Based on an ABS-CBN interview with Joey Gorango, his son-in-law said, quote, Siya na yung pinakaunang fake news troll sa kasaysayan ng mundo. He put out all the fake news back then that justified martial law. And Filipinos, including myself, would read about it and think, Tama, dapat nga magkaroon ng martial law. We believed it. Unquote. However, in 1974, Thibault wrote in his book that he began having ill feelings about the lies that the Marcos regime was spreading to the Filipino people. Thibault also had a dispute with Coco Romualdez, the brother of former First Lady Imelda Marcos, who would control various corporations that were forcibly taken by the regime. He became fed up with the Marcoses and had a realization that the former dictator was not looking out for what was best for the country 
but was dead set on holding power indefinitely. According to his wife, Thibault had enough of the Marcus's devious plan. He said, quote, na. I cannot swallow it anymore, unquote. On October 23, 1974, Thibault finally departed from After his arrival, he had issued a defection statement and sought political asylum, vowing to expose the Marcus regime. In June 1975, Thibault was invited before the United States House of Representatives Subcommittee on International Organizations, which held hearings on human rights violations in South Korea and the Philippines. Furthermore, the night before Thibault was scheduled to divulge sensitive information before the U.S. Congress, he pointed out in his book that Ferdinand Marcos called and tried to bribe him with $100,000 to stop him from attending the hearing. Thibault did not cave in and provided the U.S. Congress details about voter fraud, corporate theft, payoffs, unlawful arrests, and corruption under the Marcus regime. Based on his opening testimony, he said, quote, I was hoodwinked into supporting the imposition of martial law. The reasons used by President Marcos were deliberately manufactured by Mr. Marcos himself to perpetuate him in power." Unquote. Hoodwink means to deceive or trick someone. Aside from testifying before the U.S. Congress, Thibault started writing a book called The Conjugal Dictatorship of Ferdinand and Melda Marcos. The book was crucial because he was the first person who came from the regime to tell the harsh realities behind the Marcos administration. The book was also filled with scandalous details and sensitive information that truly endangered Thibault and his family's lives. Nevertheless, the book was published in the United States in 1976 and was banned in the Philippines. During martial law, the Marcoses held a firm grip on how news and information were distributed. Hi, dear listener, my name is Christine Abregana, and I've just started a podcast that covers true crime cases from all over Asia. It is called Asia in the Shadows, a true crime podcast. Ever heard of the eight immortal restaurant massacre of Macau? Or the pop star turned killer from Malaysia? Or perhaps the mysterious death of a Maldivian model with blue eyes in Bangladesh? If not, then make sure to tune in to Asia in the Shadows, a true crime podcast where I will be sharing three stories every month on a Wednesday about the most jarring crimes in Asia. For more information, make sure to follow us on Instagram at AITSPod. See you soon. Thibault knew the dangers that could happen to him and his family before releasing his controversial book. It is why his disappearance in 1977 came to no surprise. But what happened next would genuinely break our hearts. 
on the third week of January 1977, Thibault went to Guam on a speaking engagement. According to his wife, Imelda Marcos asked General Fabian Ver, a Marcos confidant, and a newsman surnamed Makalintal, nephew of former Chief Justice Kerube Makalintal, to fetch Thibault. Somehow, Thibault was lured to go back to the Philippines. He made his final phone call to his family on January 23, 1977, and was last seen with General Ver at the Guam airport leaving for Manila. Unfortunately, Thibault did not arrive in the Philippines. He was never seen again. Rumors began to spread of his sudden disappearance. Some say that he was thrown out of the helicopter by Marcos's henchmen, while others say he went into hiding. Nevertheless, Thibault's children continued to hope that their father was still alive. However, four months later, they would face another devastating incident. Four months after the disappearance of Thibault Mijares, his son, Boyet, went missing. On May 31, 1977, residents from a nearby deserted area in Antipolo Rizal recalled that they saw a helicopter hovering around. Minutes later, they got shocked when they heard something fall from the sky onto the rocks. Curious residents promptly discovered what had fallen, only to find out a few moments later that it was a teenage boy's body that showed signs of being extremely beaten up. Several meters away from where the body was found, the residents also found the victim's eyeball. Authorities quickly retrieved the body, brought it to a funeral parlor, and examined the remains. According to medical experts, the boy's head was bashed, his body had burn marks and dark bruises, and his torso was gouged with an ice pick 33 times. Two weeks ago, Boyet Mijares went missing. According to his mother, Judge Priscilla Mijares, her son asked permission to go out with his friends to watch the movie Cassandra Crossing with some friends at Alimol, Cubao, Quezon City. Boyet's mother approved, but insisted that he ride with her first to drop her off at her engagement at the time. Then their car would drop him off at his destination afterward. However, Boyet did not follow his mother's request and instead asked Indai, their maid, for some money, and off he went. It was the last time he was seen alive in their household. Later during the day, the Mijares family received phone calls from kidnappers claiming that they had abducted Boyet and demanded 200,000 pesos for his release. The family called the authorities to help them look into the situation. Panfilo Lacson, a 2022 presidential candidate and senator, was an official of the anti-kidnapping group of the now-defunct Philippine Constabulary assigned to Boyet's case. Lakson claimed that he traced one of the kidnappers' calls from a building inside the University of the Philippines' Diliman campus. 
Amid the two-week investigation before Boyette's body was recovered, Priscilla told her son's kidnappers that they would pay the ransom, to which the police objected. However, the family never heard from the perpetrators again. It led Boyette's mom to leak the news of her son's abduction to the press on May 30. A day later, the severely beaten body of a teenage boy found in Antipolo was confirmed to be Boyet Mijares after his mother sent someone over to identify the corpse. After her son's burial at Loyola Memorial Park in Marikina, Priscilla vowed to solve Boyet's murder, even without the police, who was completely loyal to former dictator Ferdinand Marcos, the nemesis of her husband, Tibo. Before Judge Priscilla started her investigation, Panfilo Lacson's unit claimed that they had solved Boyat's gruesome murder with the arrest of three fratmen from UP belonging to the Tau Gamma fraternity. According to the Philippine Constabulary, Boyat Mejares was a victim of hazing. The authorities claimed that there were four men behind the killing of Boyat but only three of the four men were jailed because they had insufficient evidence against the fourth person. The three were sentenced to death. Shockingly, two suspects named Rolando Poe and Emmanuel Patajo escaped prison, while the third suspect, surnamed Abude, died of a heart attack. Rolando Po escaped Pasig City Jail, while Emmanuel Patajo faked an asthmatic attack from his maximum security cell. None of the escapees were heard from again. In the book, Martial Law, Never Again, written by Raisa Robles, a well-known investigative journalist, Tao Gama denied the allegations brought by the Philippine Constabulary for the brutal slaying of Boyet Mejares. The investigation conducted by the authorities back then, led by Panfilo Lacson, seemed superficial and rushed. First, Boyet at the time was a third-year high school student at Lourdes School of Mandaluyong. Why would he join a college fraternity? Second, the four alleged suspects behind Boyet's killing conveniently disappeared. It seemed too good to be true. On the other hand, Panfilo Lacson confirmed to Raisa Robles in an interview in February 2016 that he was indeed the case officer assigned to the Boyet Mejares case. According to Lacson, the Mejares family confirmed that the body found in Antipolo belonged to Boyet. However, he could not recollect if the body was thrown from a military helicopter as seen by residents near the area, nor how the body ended up there in the first place. The senator also told Raisa that some reports back then leaned towards a homosexual angle that could have been the reason behind Boyet's death but he did not bring it up with the family. Panfilo Lacson maintained that he treated Boyet's case 
as a simple kidnap for ransom incident. Although he knew that Judge Priscilla continued to investigate her son's death unostentatiously, even if the case was ruled closed. Nevertheless, the inconsistencies from the police investigation led Judge Priscilla to believe that her son's death was related to her husband's sudden disappearance four months ago. As stated in the book, Indai, the Mejares family's maid revealed to Judge Priscilla that Boyet had a phone pal, who was the same person that asked him out to the movies on the day of his kidnapping. According to Indai, Boya told her that he was on the phone with his father, Tibo Mejares. Though sadly, no one could confirm whether Indai's story was true. When the Marcuses were ousted in February 1986, the Mejares family hoped that Tibo would come out of hiding and resurface back in the country. Opposition figures Raul Manglapus and Heherson Alvarez came home from U.S. exile, but Tibo was never heard from again. The Commission on Human Rights in 1986, led by Jose Jocno, a statesman and father of 2022 senatorial candidate Attorney Chel Jocno, investigated the Mejares case. Unfortunately, after Jose Jocno's death in the same year, the case went nowhere. The tragic incident to both Tibo and Boyet affected the mindset of the Filipinos and fighting the Marcos dictatorship. It frightened plenty of people from voicing out against the vicious methods that the Marcos regime was capable of doing to those who opposed them. This tasteful rumors suggest that Marcos ordered the military to abduct Boyet and made Tibo watch his son go through brutal torture before he was heartlessly killed, while others said that Marcos did that to the Mejares family to set an example and scare the Filipino people from going against the government. The Mejares family maintains that these stories were unproven, which became urban legends. Nevertheless, whatever Primitivo's motives behind his controversial book, his youngest son, Boyet, did not deserve to die especially the gruesome torture that the 16-year-old endured. In his book, The Conjugal Dictatorship of Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos, Thibault wrote in the first and last paragraphs under the author's foreword, quote, This book is unfinished. The Filipino people shall finish it for me. When the Filipino is then set free, and could participate in cheerful cry over the restoration of freedom and democracy in the Philippines. That cry shall be the fitting finish to this, my humble work." Unquote. For further updates, please follow us on Facebook Instagram, and Twitter at PH Murder Stories. And subscribe to our YouTube channel, PH Murder Stories. If you have case suggestions, please go to our website at phmurderstories.com and fill out the request form at File Your Blotter.
Did you like this episode? Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, or if you're listening on other platforms, kindly send us a review on our Facebook page or send us a tweet. You can also share our podcast to your Instagram and Facebook stories through Spotify. We're also inviting you to join our Facebook group, PH Murder Stories The Verdict, and participate in our discourse about true crime, both local and international. This group is a safe space for true crime and mystery fans like us who want to engage in thorough discussions about the subject. To all our listeners, we hope you could support us on Patreon. If you're fond of online shopping, you can also help our team earn a small commission by clicking our Lazada and Shopee affiliate links found in the description. Any amount you contribute will enormously help support our team to produce more quality content. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.